My hope is only Christ. There's no one else that I have. There's nothing else that I have. It is Christ alone. Father, I pray that you would enable us this morning to cling to our hope, to listen to these verses that John wrote so many years ago that that you gave to him to write to these churches and that we would hear you, our Savior, speaking to Smyrna but also speaking through them to us especially as we consider our brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted all day long. God, enable us to remember that nothing in the world can separate us from the love of Christ. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray it in the precious name of our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. And I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2. Last week we began looking at this persecuted church, the church in Smyrna. Every letter has the same seven components. There's a greeting, which in this letter, verses 8 through 11, is the, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. We talked about Smyrna as the city, 35 miles north of Ephesus. Izmir is the modern-day city in Turkey. We talked about how uh, there was much persecution going on, but specifically because they were required to worship the emperor as God by offering incense And if they would not do that, they were given 10 days in prison to recant and to offer incense. But if they would not, they would be killed. It was the most dangerous place to be a Christian in the world back then. We looked at the the greeting, number one. Secondly, we looked at the description of Christ. He says he is the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. He's the first and the last. He was dead, but he has come to life. And how that is so encouraging, not only because first and last means he knows what's happening, he's sovereign over what's happening, but secondly, he has already been killed, raised from the dead, the firstborn of all the resurrection that's going to happen. He is the one who has brought about the hope that even if we die, we will never die. We look thirdly at the declaration of what Christ knows, and we said he knows three main things about this church. He knows their tribulation, their persecution, the suffering that they're going through. Secondly, he knows their poverty. They have had their businesses shut down. They have had their homes taken away. They've lost their money, their source of income. They've lost their very lives. And he knows, number three, the ridicule that they're going through by the Jewish uh, community that says you are uh, worshiping some other false god, but we worship the one true God. And we talked about how They had a synagogue, and that synagogue was the synagogue of the Lord, but God says, no, that's actually the synagogue of Satan. They are of the synagogue of Satan. And then we got to number four last week, and this was the last one that we got to last week, the criticism. Every letter has some form of a criticism except for two. The first one is here in Smyrna. There is no criticism. There is no, like uh, the church in Ephesus, uh, but this I have against you. You have left your first love. There is no criticism. The most persecuted church is also the most pure church. 
And that is not a coincidence. Persecution enables purity, as we've already talked about both last week and already this morning as we've looked at the persecuted church around the world. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, Jesus promised his disciples three things, that they would be completely fearless, that they would be absurdly happy, and that they would be in constant trouble. And that's exactly what we see here. These believers are absurdly happy in Christ, pure. There's no criticism, there's no word of rebuke whatsoever. But there is a warning that is given, that judgment is coming, that persecution is coming. It's going to be even more severe. So we'll finish out points 5, 6, and 7 this morning. But the question before us as we dive into this text is, how do you face persecution in a way that you remain faithful? How do you do that? Uh, the pastor of the church in Smyrna at this point in, this, in the writing of this text was more than likely a man by the name of Irenaeus. And Irenaeus was discipling a man by the name of Polycarp, who was also a disciple of John, but John had been removed. He was on the Isle of Patmos, and so Irenaeus was helping Polycarp. And Polycarp would soon become the pastor of the church in Smyrna after Irenaeus was killed. Polycarp, would be, would be the pastor for over 50 years in Smyrna. He's probably about 23 to 24 years old when this is being written. Maybe even was the delivery boy when he was at the port, got the letter from John and delivered it to Irenaeus who read it before the congregation. How amazing to consider that Polycarp preached these words. He opened a scroll, and on that scroll were these words that we have before us, and these words enabled Polycarp in his moment of suffering and persecution to remain faithful. During Polycarp's pastorate in Smyrna, there was a new proconsul. We don't really have a proconsul anymore. Uh, Proconsuls like the DA and the sheriff put into one person. So this guy can give the charges, give the warrant, arrest you, and then hand you over to the governor to be punished. This proconsul, who was the new one that had been named during Polycarp's ministry, was the proconsul who built the stadium of over 20,000 seats. His main goal when he was uh, brought to power as the proconsul was to kill every Christian in Smyrna. That was his number one goal. Imagine that as your candidating move. If you elect me as proconsul, I will rid this city of every single Christian that there is. Christianity was thriving in Smyrna, so he determined to stamp it out in its entirety. And he did so by bringing in lions to the stadium to eat the Christians. He had a tactic of starving the lions all week long and then bringing in as many Christians as he possibly could on Saturday to be killed. This turned out not to be effective, and therefore they began burning Christians as well. Once the lions were full, they would go back into their cages, and therefore we needed another way to kill Christians, and so they would burn them. He knew Polycarp was the pastor of the church in Smyrna, and he wanted to kill Polycarp, but Polycarp was in hiding. His church had said, go into hiding. So he tried to call out Polycarp by kidnapping younger children, younger teenagers who knew the gospel and were a part of the church and killing them. On one occasion, he took 10 teenagers 
And he asked them one by one if they would tell him in front of the 20,000-seated arena, the stadium, if they would tell him where Polycarp was hidden. Uh, Germanicus was the first one, a teenager, who was asked by this proconsul, where is Polycarp hiding? Germanicus gave a pep talk to the nine other teenagers that were with him that had been kidnapped and said, I will never tell you where Polycarp is and I will never deny Christ. And because he wanted so badly to maintain his faithfulness to Christ, he ran into the lion's den to be killed. He told his nine other fellow comrades, I'm going to die. Don't tell where Polycarp is. Remain faithful. And he ran into the lion's den, into a cage to be eaten. One by one by one, the teenagers were killed. Finally, the proconsul came to a man named Quintus, and Quintus agreed to turn Polycarp into the authorities. So a, a band of soldiers formed. They came to this old abandoned farmhouse where Polycarp was in hiding. When they found Polycarp, he was at least 86 years old, probably even older than that. And they found him, they were embarrassed to see that they had this huge band of soldiers to capture and to arrest this old, frail man. When he was being arrested, Polycarp asked for two things. He said, before you take me, can I do two things? Number one, can I throw a feast for you? And he, he got as much food as he possibly could, and he threw a feast. And number two, can I pray before we dive into the feast? His prayer was over two hours long. <laughs> Just gospel, gospel, gospel. The police were so moved by the prayer and the feast that they asked the chief of police who was with them, can we not arrest him? Can we just let him go? And the chief of police said, no, we have to arrest him because the proconsul said we had to. But the chief of police brought him to the prison and said, I will give you in the corner of your jail cell, I'll give you a tiny little fake made-up altar. I'll give you a pinch of the worst, uh, terrible incense in the world. Just throw it on there and I'll say that you did it. You don't have to do it in front of anybody. You don't have to worship Caesar in front of anybody. You can do it in the privacy of your own jail cell. I won't even tell anybody that you did it. And he said, you have 10 days to determine what you will do. They loved Polycarp. Polycarp, in the midst of those 10 days, I believe had to have been going back to these verses. I think these verses may have been exactly what got Polycarp through those 10 days. Let's read these verses. Let's finish our study of these verses, and then let's return to Polycarp's story to hear how he himself finished his race. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy by those who say that they're Jews, but they're not. They're of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. 
Father, we ask that you would impress upon our hearts these verses so that in our time of persecution, which is coming, that we would be fearless and we would be faithful. May these words that you, Holy Spirit, wrote, may you emblazon them upon our souls so that in our hour of testing, we would remember them just as Polycarp would have remembered them. Words that enabled him to run his race well. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. So to finish out our outline of seven points, we have the greeting, we have a description of Christ, declaration of what Christ knows, and a criticism. Uh, we, have five, uh, we have five, six, and seven to finish it out. So five is the warning. Normally the warning corresponds to the criticism. Here's a criticism, therefore repent. Since there is no criticism, there technically isn't a warning. It's a warning of a different kind, that there is judgment that's going to be coming. There's persecution that's going to be coming, not judgment. There's going to be suffering and sorrow that will be coming. So we have a, a warning. We also have uh, an exhortation, and then we have a promise. So we'll look at those three together this morning. First of all, the warning. The warning. Again, this is a different kind of warning because most of the warnings come right after the rebuke. Repent or else. That's the typical warning. Here, the warning in verse 10 is just that there will be persecution. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. He's warning them, saying suffering is about to come. It's going to be through the devil. He's going to cast some of you into prison so that you'll be tested, and you will have tribulation for 10 days, and you will die. Be faithful unto death. You will die. Don't fear. He says, here's the warning, you're going to die. But here's, there are two imperatives that he gives in this verse. And these are the two imperatives that I want to just, in your mind and in your hearts, that you will never forget. Do not fear and be faithful. Or if you want two Fs, be fearless and be faithful. Be fearless and be faithful. Do not fear. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse 33, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. You are going to go through suffering, but don't be afraid. Take heart, take comfort, take solace in the fact that I've already overcome the world. So you don't have to be afraid. What can the world do to you? They can kill you, yes. They can hurt you, yes. But they cannot hurt you in that second death. They cannot take away your soul from my possession of it. Therefore, don't be afraid. Do not fear. And then he says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. He knows suffering. He's the first and the last. He knows that suffering is coming. So do not be afraid for the suffering that's about to come that I know is coming. It's being brought on by the devil. The devil cannot do anything outside of the power of God allowing it, ordaining it, um, allowing it to, to come to pass. And ultimately, the suffering that they're going to go through is a test. It's a refining, it's a purifying, it's a sanctifying suffering. So don't be afraid. Let me tell you what's about to happen before it happens so that you can take heart that I know that you don't need to be afraid. The devil's going to cast you into prison and you will have tribulation for 10 days. You will have tribulation for 10 days. What does 10 days mean? That's my question. Why 10 days? What does that mean? And I cannot tell you how much ink by commentators in the theological community is spilled on 10 days 
and the majority of their ideas about 10 days are crazy. They, have, they make some of the weirdest ideas of 10 days. They go to Genesis to find a period of 10 days, and they go, these must connect. We always ask the question, what would John think about what, about what we think about what John is saying, right? What would John think about me thinking that 10 days is a reference to some period of time in Genesis? I think John would say, sorry, but you're crazy. What does 10 days mean? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea specifically what it means. I don't see any reason why we don't have to take it as 10 days. Just literally, it's just going to be 10 days. There's going to be a period of intense persecution for 10 days. That period will end, and then life will continue at its normal pace of persecution and suffering. I don't see any reason why we don't have to take it that way. So I don't know specifically what it means, but I know generally what it means, and it means three things. It clearly means three things. Number one, God knows everything. He knows everything, right? He says... I know the exact period of time that you will suffer. So God knows everything. This 10 days tells us God knows everything. Secondly, this 10 days tells us that the time of our suffering is always predetermined. God is not watching us go through suffering going, man, I hope this ends soon. God knows when it will happen. God knows when it will end. God knows every aspect about it. He knows the exact moment. Remember when Jesus was on the earth and he said to Judas and he said to the band of soldiers that was arresting him, this hour is your hour. You have your time now. I know that now is your time. It wasn't your time before. Remember people were trying to kill him and he said, it's not my hour of death yet. Jesus knows when Every aspect of our suffering will happen. From persecution and death to trial and tribulation, it does not have to be sorrow and suffering on a massive level like being killed for Christ. No matter what you're going through, if it's a trial, if it's a difficulty, if it's some form of affliction, God knows it because he knows everything, and it's predetermined. It's predetermined. There's an end point to it. And that leads to number three. We know 10 days means, number one, he knows everything. Number two, it's predetermined. And number three, our suffering is limited. Our suffering is limited. The assaults of the enemy are limited by the sovereign purpose of God. The devil cannot do anything beyond what God allows, and God limits all of the devil's power. Any amount of suffering from Job in the book of Job, you can take away his family, but nothing more. You can take away his health, but you cannot kill him. Even to Stephen, okay, devil, you can kill him, but you can't take his soul. You can't touch his spirit. All suffering is ultimately limited. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 through 18, you could just write it down. Paul writes, Paul, who had immense suffering and ultimately was beheaded for Christ, he writes, Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. Momentary light affliction. You ask Smyrna, is this momentary? No. This, is going on, this has been going on for a long time, and yet Jesus says, 10 days. It will last for a moment. And compared to eternity, it's just a blip. Momentary light. Is this light affliction? We are having our family members killed. We are afraid that we ourselves might be killed. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, all of our suffering is limited because in comparison to glory, it's nothing. It's nothing. 
The reality is, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this world is the closest that you will ever come to hell. It's not the most enjoyable place to live, but it's not hell itself. And this is the closest you'll ever get to it. If you are a non-believer, if you do not know Jesus Christ and love him more than anything in this world, then you are experiencing the closest thing to heaven that you will experience in this world. Which again, this world is not the best. So Jesus says, your suffering is known, it's predetermined, and it's limited. And so he says, be faithful. Be faithful. Again, I don't see any reason why we don't need to just take it literally. It's going to be 10 days. Maybe it's a period of time, yes. Maybe it's something else. But you're going to have a a pressured situation for 10 days. Be faithful. That's the second imperative. There's only these two imperatives. Don't be afraid and be faithful. Two imperatives given to Smyrna. Don't be afraid, be faithful. There's an account of a family who was persecuted in the second century AD. This is from the Fox's Book of Martyrs. A woman named Felicitas, uh, a Roman lady who was a devout Christian, had seven sons that she educated with the most exemplary holiness and godliness. Listen to what happened to her family. Janarius was the eldest. He was scourged and then crushed to death with weights. Felix and Philip, the next two, had their brains, as Fox uh, puts it, dashed out with clubs. Sylvanus, the fourth, was murdered by being thrown off a high cliff. Alexander, Vitalis, and Marshall, the three younger sons, were beheaded. And then the mother, Felicitas, was beheaded with the exact same sword as her youngest three sons. All of them believers in Christ Jesus. All of them never denying the faith. All of them fearless and faithful. And my question is, how do you get that? How do you get that kind of fearlessness and faithfulness? We talked a little bit about it last week with Corey Tenboom. Of You're not going to be given the grace today for the trial that you're going to go through in years. You'll get the grace for that trial in the midst of that trial. I love there's a another account of a Christian woman who was condemned to die even though she was pregnant. The day before her execution, she went into labor and was naturally crying in her labor pains, and the jailer took the opportunity to ridicule her and said, if you make a noise today, how will you endure a violent death tomorrow? And she replied, today I suffer what is ordinary, and I only have ordinary assistance. But tomorrow I am to suffer what is more than ordinary, and I will hope for more than ordinary assistance. Today, in the midst of our ordinary circumstances, we look at those extraordinary persecutions and think, how could I ever go through that? We would go through it the exact same way that this woman did. In that day, I will hope for extraordinary grace, which we know God will give us, to be fearless and faithful in the midst of persecution. There's the warning, if we can even call it that, because it's not a warning of judgment. It's a warning of persecution that's about to come. Then verse 11, we'll finish out verse uh, 10 in just a second. Verse 11 gives us the very 
quick exhortation, which every exhortation, every letter has the exact same exhortation, which is, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen up, sober up, be vigilant, like uh, Christian cries out to the city of destruction. Be vigilant, listen, be sober-minded, have your mind quickened by the Spirit. And that leads us to number seven. So we have the warning, we have the exhortation, and number seven, finally, number three for this morning, but number seven in the list of seven items, the promise. There's two things that Jesus promises to the church in Smyrna. Number one, a crown of life, end of verse 10. And number two, that he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. We already talked about overcomers, that Greek word where we get Nike from, Nico. It's the one who conquers. It's the victorious one. It's the one who finishes and wins. And that's why Jesus says you're going to receive a crown It's going to be a crown. You are an athlete who has run your race and won the race. Uh, Crowns were given to the athletes who finished and finished first. And Jesus says, if you are faithful, you're finishing and you will get a crown. But it's not a crown like a wreath with just leaves on it or even a crown made out of gold. This is a crown of life. You are faithful by dying Be faithful unto death. You will die, but I will give you life. It's a crown of everlasting life that will never be taken away. The only other place in Scripture where this phrase, crown of life, is used is James chapter 1, verse 12. You remember James chapter 1 talking about trials and suffering. Uh, James says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. You'll get that crown in that moment. There's so much more to say on the crown issue. You can write down 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. We get an unfading crown of glory. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Uh, this present suffering is not even worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. But number two, Jesus says, not only will you receive the crown of life, but you will not be hurt by the second death. My Bible says, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Uh, it's the strongest Greek word for no. So you could literally say, you will never, no, never be hurt by the second death. There's no possibility that you would be hurt by the second death. You will die in this life. You will be hurt by the first death. That is ending in this temporal life, uh, finite time and space. But when you enter into eternity, you will not be hurt by the second death. That is hell. That's judgment. That's punishment for sins. You will never taste that because Christ has tasted it for us. So, we have a promise that's been given that those who are faithful unto death will receive the crown of life and will not be hurt by the second death. So that leads us to the the question that I believe this text is asking all of our hearts. Will we be fearless and faithful unto death? Will we ever even have a chance to prove our love for Jesus in this way by dying for him? I don't know if we will. So how will we know what we would do if that were to happen? If we were to stare death in the face, would we recant? How do we know? Well, first, I would say that there are many forms of persecution. Obviously, we're talking in Smyrna about dying for Christ. There are many forms of persecution, and I know many of you are going through various levels of persecution for your integrity, for your character in the workplace, for whatever it might be, for sharing Christ. And if you aren't experiencing any form of persecution, maybe it says something about how boldly you are in sharing Christ. 
I don't want you to walk away with condemnation, just a question. But the question before us is, do you live for Christ now? Because if you don't live for Him now, you're never going to die for Him then. Do you live for Him now? That's what dying for Christ is. It's living for Him in every moment that He's given for you. So if the moment presents itself and it is turn away from Christ and follow anything other than Him and you will live, no, I live for Christ and therefore I will face death for Him. The two imperatives to this church are two imperatives to our church as well. Be fearless and be faithful. Polycarp, when he was given 10 days to think through what he would do, said, I don't even need that time. I don't need that time. He said this, quote, The Lord has been faithful to me for 86 years. How could I be unfaithful to him now? I can't deny him now. So he and 12 other Christians were rounded up, placed into the stadium, and the 12 Christians died before he did. The mob was still unsatisfied. And so they cried out, away with those Christians, those atheists who do not worship our gods. And they said, bring out Polycarp. So Polycarp was brought out, his frail, tired body into the arena. And there were people in the stadium that yelled out, be strong, Polycarp. Be strong. Be a man and keep the faith. So he stood before the judges. They tried him one more time to get him to renounce Jesus. The proconsul told Polycarp to agree with the crowd and just simply to say, away with the atheists and you can go. Polycarp looked at the mob and looked at the proconsul and he said, no, away with you atheists. The proconsul persisted. Take the oath, deny Jesus, and go free. And Polycarp said, no, the Lord's been faithful. I will not deny him. Proconsul pressed yet again. Swear by the fortune of Caesar, he answered. And Polycarp said these words. Since you are vainly urgent that, as you say, I should swear by the fortunes of Caesar and pretend not to know who I am or what I am, then hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. And if you want to learn what the doctrines of Christianity are, appoint me a day and I will tell you them all. When the proconsul heard this, they told the mob that Polycarp indeed professed to be a Christian. He would never recant. So the crowd shouted, let the lions be loosed. But the animals had already eaten, and so they were not hungry, so they said, let's burn Polycarp. As they dragged him to be burned at the stake, Polycarp said, don't drag me. It's, it is well. I fear not the fire that burns for a season and after a while is quenched. So why do you delay? Come do what you will. Normally, they would chain the prisoner to the stake, but Polycarp said, you don't need to do that. I'm not going anywhere. So they simply tied his hands. They arranged a great pile of wood and set a pole right in the middle. And as they tied Polycarp to the pole, he prayed, I thank you, God, that you have graciously thought me worthy of this day and of this hour, and that I might receive a portion of the number of the martyrs that are in the cup of Christ. After he prayed, he gave thanks to God, and they set the wood ablaze. A great wall of fire shot up into the sky, but it never even touched Polycarp. So the guards watching and the people watching saw him so peaceful and so unharmed that they cried out for the guard to stab him with a spear, and the guard did that. 
Immediately streams of blood gushed from his body and his blood actually extinguished the fire. Some of the witnesses who were there said that they saw a dove fly up from the smoke into heaven when the fire was put out. Polycarp's last words were, I pray that my life would be used for the glory of God through the great high priest Jesus Christ and that all honor would be from the Holy Spirit himself. As Polycarp read these words, ringing in his ear in those moments, deny Christ, deny Christ and live, ringing in his ears were the words, be fearless and be faithful. Brothers and sisters, we have the opportunity to be fearless and faithful only because we trust in the one who died and has been raised from the dead and holds the keys of death and of Hades in his hand. Whenever we come to the communion elements, we look at the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And this morning, there just is no better morning to celebrate this than to remember he died, but he has been raised from the dead. So as we partake of these elements, we are remembering not only is he coming again to get us, but we don't ever have to be afraid. It's interesting to note, Jesus in this letter to the church in Smyrna never says, behold, I'm coming quickly. He says that to every other church. Behold, I'm coming quickly. He doesn't say that to Smyrna because he's not going to come get them. They're going to die and go be with him. And the reason why they were faithful is because of these elements. They knew Jesus had died. His blood had been poured out. His body had been broken on the cross. Our sins were forgiven by his atoning work. And therefore, we have nothing to fear in death. As we sing, there's no guilt in life because of Christ, and there is no fear in death because of Jesus. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing grace that enables Polycarp and Corey Tenboom and so many others, countless others around the world, to die, to stare death in the face fearless and faithful because of Christ. Right now, God, we want to honor and exalt Christ and his sacrifice. We want to love him and find our greatest satisfaction in him, not comfort, not peace, not prosperity, not uh, a freedom from persecution, but Christ alone, come what may. If we have him, we have everything we need because life is Christ and death is gain. God, enable us to confirm these things to our hearts as we sing and as we partake of communion. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.